He didn't want them. He didn't want to say, you know, uh, I will be his and her God, and they shall be my sons and daughters. Because in that culture, again, daughters did not have the same privileges, the same standing as the guys did. And God wants to say through this that, look, in heaven, there are no, you know, everybody is a son. Everybody is on the same level. There's no classes. And you get there by being an overcomer. See, that sounds like we have to do something. That sounds like we have to competition, you know, and, 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 we, and we do something to, to win. No, it's how, does, how do we overcome? 1 John 5, 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You become an overcomer when you really put your faith in Christ, saving faith. Verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now, most people read this list and they think that they're doing pretty good until they get down to the and all liars part. I mean, think, seriously, I mean, isn't this the definition of a good person? I don't murder. I don't, you know, I'm not a sorcerer or a sorceress, you know. I, I, I don't... I'm not abominable and all that. You just read this list and go, yeah, good, good. Okay, all liars. What? Now, that just, just includes everybody. That, you know, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I want you, because know, you read this and go, uh-oh, who can be saved? We're all liars. We all, we've all lied. Well, look it. I want you to understand that this list is not really a list of sins. Listen but categories of sinners. It's not really talking about individual sins here. It's talking about categories of sinners. Remember what God said when he first created the world? He said, everything will bring forth after its what? Kind. We were once fallen sons and daughters of Adam. We proved it every day by bringing forth after our kind. Fallen sinners produce the fruit of sin. You, as believers, are a new kind. You're a new creation. And as such, you bring forth new fruit, the fruit of righteousness, right? Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian cannot sin, nor does it mean an unbeliever can't do anything good. It just means the general pattern of their life is that they will bring forth after their kind. Sinners prove they're sinners by sinning. The sinning doesn't make them a sinner. It just proves that they are a sinner, right? These categories, it's not talking about individual actions. It's talking about nature, talking about what a person is. A similar list is found in Revelation 22, verse 15. We've already read it. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices a lie. Those are the ones that wind up in hell. Now, turn to 1 Corinthians 6 once. I want to show you something. Because Paul does a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, Paul said, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We're talking about now the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in Revelation. And Paul says, Look, the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He said, Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of what? Such were some of you. Notice he doesn't say, and such did some of you. But 
You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See, Paul is not talking about individual sins. He's talking about categories of sinners here. At any time, he said, and such were some of you guys, signifying that a person who has lived a life of fornication or idolatry or homosexuality or a, a, a thief or covetous or whatever it might be, if they repent, they can be children of God. They can be saved. It's obvious, Paul said, because some of you guys were involved in that lifestyle. It's not that people that practice these things can't ever stop practicing and go to heaven. And it doesn't also mean that a true Christian can't fall back in to one of these things at times until they begin to grow to the point where it no longer has a hold on them. There are people that have been drunkards for many, many years, have gotten saved and, you know, have fallen, you know, off the wagon here and there. And eventually God gave them grace and they, as they walk with the Lord more and more, had less of a hold in their life until they're free. So we're not saying that if anyone ever does any of these things, that's it. They're going to hell. The key word here is practice these things because it's their nature. So such were some of you, speaking of nature, not and such did some of you. Many of us have done some of these things. And yet we have been washed in the blood of Christ. We've been sanctified. We've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so outside this holy city in the outer darkness in the lake of fire are all these folks who never repented of their fallen nature their sins you know just that came forth because they were sinners never repented of the old life and so that's why they have been separated from god for eternity i really liked what ray steadman said about this listen to this okay he's talking about verse eight now he said, in this passage, we find three attitudes which result in five forms of visible behavior. These attitudes and forms of behavior mark those who are lost and who will not be a part of that holy city in the new earth. First are the cowardly, those who are fearful, unwilling to take the yoke of Christ upon themselves, afraid to confess Jesus Christ, unwilling to be in the minority or on the uh, unpopular side of things, afraid of the risks entailed in being a follower of Christ, they turn their backs on the offer of life. Second are the unbelieving, those who willfully refuse to believe what their hearts tell them is true. They reject the evidence because they don't want God to invade their self-centered lives. Third are the vile, those whose way of life has become foul and abominable. They love the stink of their own sin and would scratch and claw anyone who would try to rescue them from it. They feed their minds with vile books, with vile movies and vile music. They speak vile speech and practice a vile lifestyle. These then are the three deadly attitudes, the cowardly, the unbelieving, and the vile out of these attitudes flow evil behavior, such as murder, sexual immorality, involvement in the, in the occult and demonic arts, that's the sorcery, also idolatry and lying, hypocrisy. No one, who, no one who refusing redemption gives himself or herself over to such behavior will be found in the city of God, end quote. And it's nobody's fault but their own. It's not as though God didn't want to save them. It's not like God didn't reach out 
and say, if at any time you're thirsty, come. You know, God is not keeping people from the living waters. They're just not thirsty. That's the problem. They are so filled with their own sin and rebellion, doing their own thing, they're not thirsting for God at all. And you've talked to them, haven't you? You've talked to people where you just give them the gospel as best you know how, and it just bounces off. It doesn't penetrate at all. They are not thirsty. They are satisfied with the things of this world. Now, verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, we haven't seen this angel for a thousand years. John mentions him, well, you just saw him yesterday. Or maybe a few minutes, five minutes ago. Because John's in heaven, right? John's outside of time. John is seeing these things unfolding in front of him in a moment of time, things that are taking thousands of years, we'll say. I mean, John just saw this angel in chapter 16 pour one of his the bowls out of God's wrath on the earth. And now we've gone past that. We're in the millennial kingdom has come and gone thousands of years. Now we're in the eternal state. And John looks and goes, oh, yeah, there's that angel. John's recognizing angels. He spends so much time in heaven. He's not, yeah, there's, uh, you know. Charlie and oh yeah there's Gabe and you know he's he's recognizing angels now he's like an old uh, like he's been there forever but the idea is that um, John sees this city the angel says come I will show you the bride the lamb's wife and John sees this city now because of the language it almost sounds like the city is the bride that really isn't true the city isn't the bride but it's being described and identified by its inhabitants you know, we're Chicagoans, basically, even though we're suburbanites. We, you know, Chicago's our town. And when people sing, Chicago is my kind of town, they're not talking about the bricks and mortar. They're talking about the heart, the spirit of the city. They're talking about the people, aren't they? Well, the same is true here. The city isn't the bride, but it is the bride city. It's the bride city because she is so identified with the city, that the city is like the bride. It's the bride city. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. You have to understand, this city is so big that to see it in all of its glory, God had to take John a great distance away and put him on top of a high mountain so he could take in the incredible sight of the new Jerusalem in its entirety. Man, that's how big the city is. I mean, he could never have really gotten a full glimpse of what it was really all about just standing next to it. I mean, God had to take him far away, looking down on the things that's descending out of heaven to the earth. And as John sees this thing, he begins to describe what he sees. In verse 11, he said, her, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The word light there is a Greek word that means illuminator. Illuminator. This city doesn't just reflect and refract light. Listen, it radiates light. Why is that? Well, verse 23 tells us, the city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. 
the New Jerusalem seems to be a city that somehow absorbs and then radiates the glory of God the same way that Moses' face absorbed and then radiated the glory of God after he spoke with God face to face, remember? Interesting passage how God Moses talked with God face to face when he came down from the mountain. His face was glowing, radiating, because he was in the presence of God. This city is going to be in the presence of God. God's going to be on the throne in the very heart of the city. And as God's glory and the light of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, radiates, the city is somehow going to absorb it and also illuminate. Just incredible. John describes the city like one big jasper stone, which he says is clear as crystal. Think of a diamond or one big Swarovski crystal. Swarovski. My wife loves, I can't even pronounce this. Swarovski, I thought it was Swarovski. It's actually Swarovski. Swarovski. <laughs> Close enough. But those beautiful crystals that you see in the stores, you know, and well, you, know, you all know what happens when you shine a bright light through a, through a multifaceted diamond or crystal. What happens? It acts like a prism, and it radiates. It just shoots colored lights everywhere. You know, in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, Peter mentions the manifold grace of God. The word manifold means multicolored. I mean, what did John actually see? I think that John is stumbling over his words, trying to find something that he can use to describe in a, just a very limited way what, what he's actually seeing. I've tried to imagine, you know, as I've read this over the years, what was John actually looking at? What kind of city is this going to be that John is trying to describe here for us? I mean, what are we going to see the first time we actually lay eyes in the city? You know, Dave Hawking, Bible teacher, and a friend of mine, but Dave was saying that he actually submitted a description of the New Jerusalem to a professional gemologist that teaches this subject at the University of L.A. And after reviewing the information right out of Revelation, here's what the man said. If this is true, this is going to be the most spectacular sight that the human eye has ever seen. And in fact, I doubt seriously that without a radical change of the human eye that we could possibly stand the sight of it for all of its brilliance. Wow. Now, verse 12 says, Also she, the New Jerusalem, had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. There are those who believe that because this is the bride city, and they think of the bride as only referring to the church, many believe that the inhabitants of this city are going to be made up solely of Christians. Now, there's a debate as to whether the bride is going to include Jews who were saved in the Old Covenant and Christians. Some say no, the idea of a bride is limited only to the church. And you know, I can see both sides. I know one thing, that even though this is called the bride city, 
And if the bride only refers to the church, that does not mean that the Old Testament saints are not going to be living here also. And that's what I think is being represented by the 12 gates, having the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, indicating that Israel, the redeemed of Israel, also has a part in this city. It's, I think, very significant that the gates that lead into the city have these the names of the 12 tribes written on them, because I think that's significant because uh, it signifies that our access into this city, into heaven, is through the nation of Israel. Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And Paul said in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, talking about the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. Without Israel, none of us could be adopted into the family of God. They were the instrument that God chose to bring forth the Messiah into this world. And they paid a heavy price for being that instrument. You find the rabbis, you know, I don't know if they're kidding around or if they're serious. But it's like, you know, the people of God, forget it. God, use somebody else for a change. You know, we're tired of being your people. Because they've gotten such the brunt of everything, you know. The devil is really, I mean, they've been hated by everybody almost simply because they're Jews. But to them pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Paul said, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came. That's why salvation is of the Jews. Christ came through the seed of Abraham, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Jesus Christ. Well, verse 14 says, Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. You know, a lot of commentators, because they read this, like to point uh, to Ephesians 2.20, which says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, and then Paul goes on to make his point, and they say, well, here, that's, you know, look at, we have this verse in Ephesians chapter 2 uh, that, you know, talks about this. Well, not really. First of all, in Ephesians 2, verse 20, Paul talks about how the church is the temple of the living God, and the church has been built on a foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and we who are living stones are being built together into a holy habitation for God. We are the temple of God in the new covenant, right? It's not a building made by hands. It's living stones, right? But Paul's talking about the church there. Here in Revelation, we're talking about the city where the bride lives. And the idea that we have in verse 12, the Old Testament saints represented by the 12 tribes of Israel written on the gates. And then we see the foundations, which are 12, contain the 12 uh, apostles um, uh, that are holding up the city in a sense, the foundation. I think it just signifies that in this new Jerusalem, heaven, there's going to be both Jews and redeemed Gentiles. It's going to be Old Testament saints and New Testament saints all living in the same city. Now, there is a little debate as to who the 12th apostle is going to be because it says 12 foundations. And, I, and I, I, I envision this is to be 12 layers of foundations. Some say, no, actually, uh, each foundation stone is separate. So you have uh, one foundation stone that extends 500 miles and a gate, you know, right there in the middle of it, you know, in the city. And you have another foundation stone all made of one substance, right? We're going to see what the, the stones are in a minute. And, and they envision just one, one block after another of the various stones and separate and all. Uh, I suppose that's possible. 
I've always envisioned this as 12 layers of stones. And who's going to be the 12th apostle? Well, we know from Acts chapter 1 that after Judas hung himself, before the Spirit of God came upon the church and the church was born, they were spirit-filled, Peter said, we got to do something about this. You know, Judas is dead, and we got to replace him. And the Bible says, you know, give his office to another, so let's cast lots. Uh, let's pick out a, two guys and let's who are real good guys and, you know, have been around from the beginning. And we'll cast lots, and we'll choose a replacement for Judas. And they did, and a lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 12, and that's the end of the story. A lot of people say Matthias is the 12th apostle. Then some time later, Paul shows up, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. An apostle born out of due season. Well, Johnny come lately. He took a lot of heat for that, by the way. Paul's not a real apostle, they would say. He wasn't one of the 12. I kind of think Paul is the 12th apostle, but we'll see. I mean, if Paul wasn't, then he's got a special place of honor, no doubt, in the kingdom, too. But I don't think we have to worry about Paul. I think God's got him covered. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for